turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96. We'll get there in a moment. I hadn't <clears throat> prepared to preach this morning, so this could be interesting. <laughs> so when Pastor Jess texted this morning at 7, said he might not make it, Okay, well, where do we go, Lord? And so, uh, in the providence of God, I put together a lot of material to share down in Brazil at this uh, worship workshop uh, there. And I was in that largely addressing uh, people that are worship leaders, church musicians, and we're thinking about how the service should be structured and and leading and things like that. So this morning, I'm going to share a portion of that. Uh, that I think is applicable to all of us and that, uh, that we all need to understand. Some of the things this morning, this was originally designed more as a lecture than as a sermon, but I do believe there will be things that are edifying. I pray that is the, the truth. But some of the things this morning will be directly addressed to those of us who are tasked each week with leading the people of God in worship. And so there will be some specific application that I would uh, ask you to pay attention to and apply. I, my, my plan was to originally actually do all of this in a worship workshop seminar here, but instead you're going to get part of it this morning. So you just get a little sneak peek of do that. I do pray, uh, well, I, I think this, when we give attention to what the church does when it gathers to worship, not only those who are tasked with leading and planning the corporate gathering, but each one of us, when we know what we're trying to accomplish each week, that we're not merely spectators coming to an event, but that we're, the word liturgy literally means work of the people, that we're doing something together. When we understand what it is that we're doing, I think we're better equipped, and prepared to come to worship. I'm convinced, this is why each Friday there's a little encouragement in the email that the people of God should come to worship prepared their hearts and their minds, having spent time in prayer and in the word, asking the Lord to, to use this service in a unique way. And I think just as you expect Jess or I to be prepared, and you should, uh, you should prepare your hearts as well. And so this morning, maybe some of these thoughts will help you understand why and what it is that we're doing. So this morning, I have two things that I'm going to try and, and cover for us. And first of all, just be to define what is worship? And then secondly, the, the part that I'm going to spend the most of our time this morning is, is to talk about what corporate worship should look like according to the scriptures. Why do we do the things that we do on a Sunday morning? There's some foundational principles that we try to implement that I think you all should be aware of and hopefully you see those things. But let's pray first. Let's ask the Lord's help and then we will discuss these things. Lord, I need your help this morning, and your people need your help to hear your word and to apply it. We want to be a church that is serious and joyful about the gathering of God's people. We understand this is a unique gift that has been given to the church. We want to steward it well. We want to worship you according to the way you have instructed. We don't want vain or empty repetition. We don't want to be doing things that the culture says to do just because it's the trendy thing to do, but we want to be committed to the scriptures. So this morning I pray that those truths would come out. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is worship? Very simply, we define it as ascribing worth or to revere something. It has the idea to place yourself under another, right? That's to worship, to bow down before another. And you do that because you see in that thing inherent worth. This thing has value. I place myself under it. That is worship. In Psalm 96, verses 1 through 9, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll read the first couple of verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 9 is really like a conclusion or a summary of what's going on in the prior verses. He's saying, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, you see that worship is some specific things, right? He says it's singing in verse 1. It is telling in verse 2, tell of his salvation from day to day. And it is declaring in verse 3 his glory. That is one way to say this is worship, right? And it is because of specific things. It's not nebulous, we're told what we worship God for. In verse 2, he brings salvation. In verse 3, he is glorious. He does marvelous works in verse 3. Verse 4, he is above all gods. Verse 5, he is the creator. And then notice down in verse 6 that worship is reverent awe. It says splendor and majesty, strength and beauty. So that leads to the conclusion in verse 9. What should you do before this kind of God? Tremble before him. That's to worship God. If you go to John chapter 4, we see that with the coming of Jesus, worship is radically changed in many ways from what worship was like under the Old Testament. Of course, John 4 is this scene of Jesus and the woman at the well. She's bringing up questions about what is true worship. And notice what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here. So he's referencing his coming. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What Jesus is telling this woman in this conversation about where's the right place to worship? Is it at the temple or is it where we worship the Samaritans? Is it where we worship? What Jesus is saying is that true worship now is worship by means of Christ. The hour is here now. Jesus is here now. Proper worship is worship in spirit and in truth. It is by means of Christ. It's not relegated to a specific place or about sacrifices that are made, but rather, it is all of time and in every place, so it is spirit, and it is according to truth. That is, it is according to, the, to Christ, and he is the, the means, the intercessor of our worship. He makes our worship acceptable to God. That's why Jewish worship today is idolatry. 
right? Jews who do not worship by means of Christ are idolatrous. When we speak of worship as Christians, we, all, we, we, we caveat, we rightly so, that what we do on a Sunday morning is not only worship, but rather all of life is worship. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? And that connects back to what Jesus says in John 4. Worship in spirit and truth, all of time and everywhere. And while all of life is worship, the Lord has given us specific commands as to what the gathered worship is to be like. He's given us specific instructions to worship together, like we do each Lord's Day. This is corporate worship. It is the body of Christ in its local manifestations gathering together to ascribe worth to God. That's what we do each and every Sunday. We say, this is who God is. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is who we are, and this is how we respond. That's what corporate worship is about. There are people, when you think about this, the gathering is not a nice little add-on to the Christian life, but it is essential to the Christian life. Right? We all know many people who say, well, I worship God, but I don't, I can't, I'm not confined to the four walls of the church. It's so constrictive. I gotta worship God in the open, right? I don't need to go to church. And I'd say, actually, you're kind of living in disobedience. You're denying essential things that God has told us to do if that's what you think all that, that corporate worship is or is that you don't need corporate worship. So this morning, let's think a little bit about worship in the corporate gathering. It's something that God has commanded that serves a specific and unique role. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Of course, we're familiar, I hope, with these verses, this instruction and this warning. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Kent Hughes is a, a pastor. He's written a number of, of books, but he this statement about corporate worship. He said, I have come to see that while all of life is worship, gathered worship with the body of Christ is at the heart of a life of worship. Corporate worship is intended by God to inform and elevate a life of worship. In this respect, I personally view how we conduct gathered worship as a matter of life and death. There's a seriousness to what we do, not only in, in how we please and glorify God, but what it's teaching you about worshiping God and what a life of worship is to look like. So therefore, what the church does when it gathers together is very important to God and it is important to the health of the members of the church. What should corporate worship look like? I have some principles here, that, and this is how we'll spend the rest of our time. Uh, principles that should guide what we do and what we do not do. Not everything that the church, broadly speaking, does, we should do. And not everything that the church, broadly speaking, has neglected to do, 
we should, we should pick those things up, right? There are things that are rejected by the broader church culture that we need to re- bring back, and we need to adopt those things. So here's a sentence to summarize what principles should guide the gatherings of the church, and I've got this on the screen, and then what we're going to do in the rest of our time is break each of these elements down. So this is a sentence that I've put together that I think these principles should guide the gathering of the local church. The gathering of God's people to worship should be corporate-focused, Trinitarian worship, glorifying God the Father, exalting Christ the Son, and empowered by the Spirit. That it is joyfully reverent, affecting the head and the heart, and saturated in the Scriptures. This is what I believe corporate worship should look like. So let's break these things down a little bit and talk about each one of them. When we talk about a church service being corporate-focused, it should be painfully obvious, but unfortunately it's not. That's why we have to, to define what we mean. The church is not a, a building or a place, but it's a people, right? We together are the people that make Calvary Bible Church what it is. Built, don't really burn the building down. That happened in the past. We don't want that to happen again. But Calvary Bible Church didn't cease to exist when the old building burned down. Why? Because it's a people, right? That's what we are. We are the ones who have committed ourselves to one another. And it's not just here in Grand Junction, but it's in Paiosa, Brazil, right? It's around the world. We're those who are have committed to one another to serve one another, to love one another, to be accountable to one another, to place ourselves under leadership and authority of others. So the church by its very nature is a group of people. Therefore, when the church comes together for worship, the worship should be something that the church does together. We're all in this together. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians, is addressing some aberrant views of worship and problems that were going on in the church. And I want you to notice what he says at the end of verse 26. We're not going to get into the tongues and revelation. But he says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Here's the point. Let all things be done for building up. All right? Everything that we do in corporate worship is for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Again, this is essential to keep in mind. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, familiar passage again. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, here's this, all things done for building up, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We gather together to minister to one another by teaching and admonishing, and one of the ways we do that is through song, through preaching of the word, through prayer, through scripture reading, but there's this one united purpose to build one another up, to teach and admonish one another. So that means nobody that comes to Sunday morning worship has no role to play. Every person has a role in the worship of God, the corporate worship. It's not performing for one another. It's not simply listening to one another, but it is that we are all together serving one another, admonishing one another. 
So principle number one is simply this, that corporate worship should be corporate-focused, helping all the church teach and admonish one another. The second thing is that it should be Trinitarian. That is, it brings glory to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by bringing glory to God, the Father, we recognize that when we gather, we gather to worship God. To glorify God is to make much of Him. This is the God that we, that we worship. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. And just notice the end of, of verse, what's well, the end of verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Who's our worship to? To God. And then he's going to talk about how that should be done. But our worship is first and foremost to God. Psalm 34, verse 3, magnify the Lord with me, right? Make much of God. We worship God. In corporate worship, is it clear that God is the one that is worshiped? It's a question that we should be asking. Our worship is to God alone. Is worship done with an understanding of the imminence and presence of God? Is worship done with an eye towards His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His goodness? You know, church services can unfortunately be very man-centered. Right? It can be about how hard I'm going to praise God today, right? I'm going to praise Him loudly. I'm going to really do this. It can be about how I feel or my wants or my needs. And all of that can detract from glorifying God, from worshiping God. Our focus is, first of all, about glorifying God. Secondly, it's about exalting Christ, right? We glorify God by exalting Christ. And especially in our worship services, we're considering the saving work of Christ. What is it that the second person of the Trinity has done? He has come to earth, taken on flesh, on the cross, bore our sin upon himself and has given to us his righteousness. The church can never forget those things. We must continually exalt Christ for what he has done for us, for his righteous life and atoning sacrificial death. We exalt Christ when we see him as our worship leader. In Hebrews chapter 2, right, there's this scene, or these words that are spoken of from the Psalms that are attributed to Christ speaking them, and the picture is that he is leading his people in worship in heaven. So it's said of Jesus, I will tell your, of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Right? We gather together, we recognize Jesus, first of all, is the one that is leading us in worship in heaven. So we exalt Christ in that way. And we exalt Christ when we understand that he is not only our sacrifice, but he is our mediator, our intercessor, our high priest. He is ministering in heaven at the right hand of the Father as the mediator of the new covenant. That's what we do. We're new covenant worshipers, right? That's where we get our marching orders. Hebrews chapter 8, you can read about Christ's interceding work for us. And then finally, it is Trinitarian because it is God-glorifying, it is exalting Christ, and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. 
Paul writes, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. According to Ephesians 5, Spirit-empowered worship will result in our singing, and our singing is for a purpose outside of ourselves, right? This is very similar to what, what Paul has said in Colossians 3. I think I've made this point before. I don't mean to be the like hammer-on singing guy, but I kind of do at the same time too because it's biblical, right? That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. An outflow of the Spirit filling you and dwelling you is singing, okay? But if you choose to abdicate yourself from singing, you just think like, well, can we just hurry up and get through that and get to the sermon part? Well, today, you're getting a double dose, basically. Um, you're missing out on a double blessing, really, and it's this. You're missing out on the opportunity to have the word minister to your heart, and you're missing out on the opportunity to be a blessing and a ministry to somebody else. And you may think, well, hold on, but you don't wanna hear me sing. Here's the reality, though. When we sing together, no one individual voice is really heard. The congregation sings together. When I stand up front, I can't discern one voice from another, but you're one voice together. And so together we are glorifying God the Father the other thing with, with this, when we're singing to one another, it's not just about the tone that's coming out of our mouths, but it's the way we're engaged, right? My heart is ministered to when I see you sing, right? And I see you respond with joy and with sorrow, right? That's ministry to others, Right? And so here's an encouragement. Look around the room sometime too when we're singing. Look at others and see how they are being ministered to and your heart will be ministered to as well. So our worship is spirit-empowered in that we are filled with the spirit and a result of that is singing. But here's the other way that our services are, are spirit-empowered and it is that we are trusting the spirit of God to work in the hearts of people. The reality is that oftentimes churches we seek, or churches can seek to manipulate emotions and feelings based on the lighting in the room, the fog machine, the perfectly choreographed worship service, the music that builds the crescendo and then just drops, right? We can seek to manipulate those things, manipulate people's feelings, but what we want to be focused upon is trusting the spirit moves through the word, brings conviction, tears down pride, reveals sin, exalts Christ, encourages us. That's my prayer each and every week as we gather, the Spirit would do that. That should be your prayer as well. I'll make one application from Galatians 5 and verse 16, and I'm gonna make this to those of us who are involved in leading worship not just, and, and there's application as well, but think about this. Paul says, Galatians 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There is the reality that when you are in a position of leadership, an upfront position, your flesh can be gratified. And as leaders, we need the help of the Spirit to fight that, right? People will come and say, great job, or they might say terrible job. Hopefully we're a little more gracious than that. Um, but we need the help of the Spirit to humbly 
respond to encouragement and criticism, to fight the fear of man, to recognize our frailties, our needs, to fight the pride in the sense of, I really am something, okay? And so we need to be reminded of that. We need to be constantly reminded that it is not us, it is the Spirit that opens people's eyes to the truths of the Word. So corporate worship, Trinitarian focused. Number three, it is to be joyfully reverent. Joyfully reverent. I return to Hebrews chapter 12 and a phrase there in verse 28 and 29. Verse 28, where the writer says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence is a deep respect. If you have a deep respect for a person, that is going to affect how you interact with them. Think about people that you revere. How do you engage with them? Maybe it's different than your buddy-buddy relationship. You'll watch what you'll say and how you act. And so it is in Christian worship. What we say and how we act should have and should reflect a reverent posture. That's that's should be the nature of our worship as a church. He says, with reverence and awe. Awe is a fear, but it's a holy fear. It's not a, uh, Martin Luther used the term of a, a servile fear, like a servant fears the punishment of the master, but it's the fear of a child and a father, right? A loving father, the child desires to obey and please the father. It is a, uh, I think under this idea of awe, you can also put the idea of wonderment or amazement. Right? I am astounded that this is true. That I, a wretched sinner, have been saved by grace. It's not a fear that causes us to run, but a fear that moves us to worship. Look at Psalm 50 quickly. Here you have an example of irreverent worship. In Psalm 50, and I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but I just want to point some things out from it. In Psalm 50, it says in verse 8 that the people are offering sacrifices to the Lord. These are things he's prescribed, right? Under Old Testament worship, there's specific sacrifices and offerings that were to be made, and they're doing this continually before the Lord. This is worship. In verses 1 and 2, God is to be revered. The Lord makes that very clear. Listen to what he says. He says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. From the rising of the sun to its setting, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Right? This is, this is who God is. This is the one that is to be worshipped. But in verse 8, the people are worshipping. But in verse 9, what does the Lord say? I will not accept your worship. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why is that? Well, these people are not reverent in their lives. Right? They're going through the motions of worship, but their lives are irreverent. They, they're inconsistent with how God has called them to live and therefore to worship. Look at verse 16. It says, The wicked... What right have they to receive the Lord's statutes? Verse 17, they hate discipline. They cast off Yahweh's words. Verse 18, they are pleased with thieves and adulterers. 
Verse 19, they speak evil and wickedness. And then look at verse 21. They have wrong and irreverent views of God. You thought that I was one like yourself. Irreverent worship diminishes God. Reverent worship is in verse 14 and in verse 23, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is reverent worship that is pleasing to God. Now, when people think about reverence, I think we often misconstrue it with dour or severe or gloomy worship, right? That there's no, it's just blah. That's not what we're talking about. Reverence is serious, it is sober, and it is joyful, right? Joy, John Piper describes Christian joy in this way. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Right? Joyful worship has good emotions, right? You feel something. It's not wrong to feel joyful, to feel good emotions in the worship of God. And it's in the soul, right? It's the immaterial part of us. It's not the physical part, right? But it's the soul. It's not simply physical feelings. And it is produced by the Spirit. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Joy, right? He produces that in his people. But it also comes as we see Christ, right? You won't have this kind of Christian joy if you're not seeing who Jesus Christ is. We apprehend with the truth of our mind, the truth of God's word and what God has done for us, who he is. The spirit enables us to see that and it produces this joy. It produces this good feeling in the soul. So corporate worship is about joyful reverence for God. Or another way to talk about this would be to talk about worship that affects the head and the heart, okay? And that's my, what would be fourth point, I believe. Worship is to affect the head and the heart, right? We sing and we hear the truth of God's word, right? Spirit-filled people will be affected in their hearts, and this results in song and emotional expression of the truth. That's what music is, Music is an emotional expression of the truth. And this affects where we, we feel joy, we feel sorrow, right? And that's expressed in worship through passionate singing, lifting of the hands, tears, bowing down. These are all natural expressions to emotion, to truth that, that affects our emotions, Natural responses to the truth of God's word. Music has this unique capacity to affect our heads and our hearts. Bob Coughlin, who's the director of Sovereign Grace Music, we sing a lot of Sovereign Grace Music, but they say this, and I think it's so true, they say that music helps us to feel the truth, right? Music helps us feel the truth. That's why you can read a line of a hymn and it doesn't have the same impact as when you sing the line of the hymn, right? Because music helps us to feel the truth. So we want our worship to affect the head and the heart. Finally, our worship services should be scripture-saturated. When um, Jess and I talked years ago about uh, us coming to Grand Junction, one of the things that he said 
is that I want our people to leave each week bathed in a tsunami of Scripture, right? That's why we read from the Scriptures like Mark did this morning. That's why we read Scripture in between the songs. I get more comments from other people when they come to our church first. You read the Bible between songs and show how it's connected. What else am I going to (laughs) do? You don't want to hear me talk the whole time. Let's let the Scripture do it. But Christians are people of the book. We are formed by, in many ways, the Word of God. It guides us. It guards us. It shapes us as who we are. And so it should do the same thing in the worship service. If we gather to worship God, we must know specific things about God. And we know specific things about God from His Word. So we need to read it. It needs to inform our service. We saturate our service in the scriptures so that you see the priority of the word of God, right? If it has this priority in the worship service, it should have the same priority in your life. When we're saturating ourselves in the scriptures, we grow to love the word of God. Writer of Hebrews says in chapter four, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, So in our services, we want to put forward the word of God so it does the cutting work. It does the convicting work that the Spirit will apply. So our corporate worship, I trust that you see this. The gathering of God's people to worship is corporate-focused, Trinitarian worship that is joyfully reverent, affecting the head and the heart, and saturated in the scriptures. Let's close in prayer. Lord, this morning has been different than I intended and different than I'm sure many thought they were coming. And yet I pray that as we've given some thought to what it is that we do as a church, that our hearts will be invigorated to say that, yes, we have a part in this. We all gather together to worship the God who has saved us. We all worship together to exalt Christ and we are dependent upon the Spirit in every way. So make us a church, Lord, that is joyfully reverent. Our hearts and our minds are affected with the truth of your word, with this wonderful gift of music to be able to feel the truth. May we grow in love for you, grow in love for the lost, May what we do on a Sunday morning impact the rest of our week as we go forth into a world that needs Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.